This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tomahome. I'm Jenny. I'm Eric. And we're going to be talking about The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Starring Rock Hudson. I don't I'm I don't understand how they called that the Martian Chronicles that adaptation it's it's not it's like two or three of the stories right Um I saw it as a kid I I didn't rewatch it Okay I, I that's funny I was thinking to myself I only remember the first couple stories Yeah it's it, so I guess they didn't do the other stories It's you know I, it's been years and years since I read this book and the things that I noticed are all the things I didn't notice, you know, in my memory of it. Uh, so there's a lot of segments that I just totally forgot, had forgotten about. But, of course, I totally remember the ending of The Millionaire Picnic, and I totally remember two or three other segments that are just shockingly uh, bright in my memory. But, Eric, you were you had this as part of your Coursera course, right? I did, yes. Um, but I, I'd like to ask you, though, Jesse, I'm fascinated um, to see if there's a thread among the parts of the book that lasted for you most in memory. Um, by the end of The Millionaire Picnic, I'm assuming you mean the the father telling the children who've asked where the Martians to look mm-hmm. down into the canal water. They see their reflection, and he says, there they are. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you were remembering, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, what are the other ones from the whole of the book that stuck in your memory? Uh, well, I seem to I seem to remember that there was a segment in there that's not actually in there. Uh, it's a little bit different. There's there's a, a story that I think was changed for this this collection. Uh, I know I remember the the moon be still as bright. Um, I remembered Usher two being in there. Although I, I didn't remember Usher 2 being as gruesome as it was, uh, which I quite enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, that story uh, was definitely a highlight for me. Yeah, and I remember the third expedition, and I remember that, you know, sort of vaguely that there were other expeditions. But, um, you know, I, I remembered the hot dog stand on Mars, but I didn't remember the the uh, the chase across the, uh, across the oceans or the deserts. Um, so it was... It's a strange book because it is a a fix up, but it's it's it sort of fits together a little better than most fix up, but also it doesn't fit together as well in some ways as well. I don't know. I I think a lot of the things, have, like I, I'm pretty sure the the one with the phone call, you know, which one is that? The long the, years. The long years. Okay, so the long years. I'm pretty so. sure is another story by Ray Bradbury that's been changed uh, called Night Call Collect. Hmm. And I, I think it might also be under the name iMars, um, which I think we even have put on the, on the website as being a public domain book. Let me just bring that up. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm mistaken. The Long Years is the one with the robot family. Oh, right. Okay. I right. sort of remember that one, too. <laughs> right. It's the silent towns, I guess. Yeah, yeah, so Walter Grip here's Genevieve. Right, so it is called iMars, and it is on the website. Um, first published in 1949. But, you know, 
The thing is, Bradbury's always changing the names of his stories, which I find extremely frustrating. Uh, I had a student the other day, you know, tell me about his the stories reading, and he called it, you know, August two two thousand twenty six or something like that. Like, What's that? I don't know that Ray Bradbury story, but it's There Will Come Soft Rains, which of course I I did know. Right. And um and that one almost doesn't fit in into the book at all to me. It doesn't belong in this book. Except as a part of a, the way I was thinking of it is, it's not actually a, a novel. It's a book of, of poems that are fixed up. <laughs> it is more. He is more a poet than he is a novelist. I would say. Well, it's kind of like those those novels of recurring characters that are related, but it's more. It just feels like short stories that tell a bigger story. Could be. It is. A, I mean, that's they're called composite novels, um, and uh, I think this is a composite novel. I don't think that it's just a collection. Um, and I would like to argue that, as it was published in 1950 in America, uh, which is what I'm holding in my hand, um, the changes were made to improve the work that had come out previously. Um, and it was made to be something that could read as a unified text. For example, the the culminating image of the whole book is the one that you referenced, Jesse, with the, the children looking down in the canal after mm-hmm. they have, you know, the father's blown up the rocket ship that got them there because science ran ahead of us by about 150 years, and we need to give ourselves up to the land in order to be able to... Uh, regain a moral balance between our abilities and our uh, desires. And so having I, I done that... this Cortez burning his ships, though, as well, you know, like, he's he's saying, you're not going back. We're all stuck here. We're going to have to deal with all the hardship that's going to come from that. Because it's for the greater good. I think that's a, that's a good reference, um, and we certainly have enough Spanish names like Tomas in the in the whole of the book to think that that's a reasonable reference. But I don't think that the father is putting this back forth as a sense of hardship because just before they go up the canal um, to see themselves in the water, we're told that he has a friend who is coming with another rocket ship with his wife and their daughters. And definitely going to need the daughters. Exactly. So they're giving themselves up to what should be not a hardship, but an Eden. Right. Um, if the doors are willing. <laughs> this is 1950. Come on. <laughs> and I, I kept thinking of Joanna Russ when, when reading this book. Like, what would she think about women just being set up to be married to reproduce a new race? Oh, absolutely. Mm. The end of Picnic on Paradise, she would just be screaming. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but, that that ending where Earth people have putatively become cleansed, and now I mean, look at the name of it: Picnic on Paradise, right? Uh, Millionaire Picnic. So Joanna Ross is giving us a, a, an alternate to that. A Millionaire Picnic. That sounds like eternity. A picnic mm-hmm. is not living in the wilderness, and a picnic is not, not being in a house. It's being in tamed nature. 
That's, right. that's Eden. It's a park. And that, that's the promise at the end. That, that story was the very first piece of the Martian Chronicles that was published. Hmm. And so I think there's a good reason to suppose that Bradbury was writing toward that as the culminating chapter. And if you look at the publication history, which you can, you can easily find in part by looking at the copyright notice in the front of the book, you'll see that only about two-thirds of the pieces were published before the Martian Chronicles. And if you look at some of his other work, you'll find that there were other Mars stories that he did publish before the Martian Chronicles that he didn't include in the Martian Chronicles. And so when you recognize that, that he had other stories he could have put in, he does order them in a certain way. The order culminates in what was apparently his original vision, and he makes about a third of the stories to somehow fit within the structure that he's working toward. I think it's a lot more than just a collection of stories. I think yeah, he really I, is aiming at a novel-like experience. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's, it's funny to me though that you know that it was the publisher who demanded this, right? It wasn't like he he was saying, you know, I really got to find a way to make this work. Um, they were saying, no, you got to find a way to make this work. And it, it it's, you know, there was a time period when, you know, p- short stories were the market and then the market shifted to, to books. And now the market shifted slightly more to series books um, I mean, there are always series, but, uh, you know, short stories other than in science fiction and fantasy really don't exist as a market anymore, I don't think. But it used to be there was a market for every kind. Um, but just Wasn't it Walter Bradbury, his editor, that had the idea? Yeah. But, but that wasn't because the publisher was forcing it on him and because the market had changed. The market doesn't change until about 1952. Because that's when uh, the Ballantines decide that it's reasonable to publish hard, softback originals. And the whole science fiction publishing landscape begins to change. Mm-hmm. Um, this is 1950, and he's being urged to do this in 49. Um, so he writes the other pieces knowing he's got a place to go, that this is going to come out as a book. But it's not that he was having trouble publishing these pieces on his own before that. In fact, no. they were wildly popular. This was a way to repackage them into something else. And if it had only been a repackaging, then I think we could say, well, you know, Maimon rules again. But mm. the the continuing power of this book, it seems to me, suggests something quite different. Uh, let, let me give you one here's – here's a way of looking at, at the structure of it. Um, you said – and. I'm sorry to be a a bit contentious here, that you don't see how There Will Come Soft Rains fits into the book. Now, There Will Come Soft Rains shows Earth with no humans anymore. And Mm -hmm. the robots uh, misunderstand what's going on, and they wind up uh, with a conflagration. They destroy the house that they were meant to serve. If you take a look at the table of contents of the Martian Chronicles, the first segment is Rocket Summer, mm-hmm. and it's set on the Earth. 
It was, in fact, also published separately. Um, then you go one, two, three on Mars, and the fourth one is the taxpayer, and that's mm-hmm. set on the Earth. Then you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then you get to way in the middle of the air, which is set on Earth. And then you get to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten, and then you get to one more set on Earth, which is mm-hmm. the next to last segment. And then the last segment is on Mars. In other words, mm-hmm. if you look at the structure of the table of contents, the book starts on Earth, but it ends on Mars. It starts on Earth, and it returns to Earth at ever longer intervals mm-hmm. until eventually human beings are freed from whatever it is that made them crass on Earth, and they are, are able to start fresh on Mars. From, from my viewpoint, Usher 2, which is such a strange pastiche of Edgar Allan Poe kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. really doesn't fit in tone in the writing of the whole book. But if the point of the Martian Chronicles is to free us from whatever is crass on the Earth, the destruction of that moral climates fellow in that story is an important step toward getting rid of the overbearing nature of Earth culture and replacing it with something more Edenic that we get at the end. So the next to last thing we see is the machines having gotten away from us completely and destroying the Earth home, and then we destroy the machines knowingly and wind up being able to inhabit the Martian paradise. Hmm. And I think there's a passage earlier in that last story that kind of shows the opposite, because to me, all of these stories show the possibility of how we could recreate ourselves, but don't, (laughs) because the dad's looking into the sky and his son asks him what he's looking at. And he says, well, I was looking for earthian logic, common sense, good government, peace and responsibility. Um, all that up there? No, didn't find it. It's not there anymore. Maybe it'll never be there again. Maybe we fooled ourselves that it was ever there. And to me, a lot of these stories have that conflict in them of um, there's all this possibility, and then they screw it up, you know, one way or the other. Either they don't understand that the Martians are going to kill them, or they destroy the environment, or the robots take control. I mean, there are all those scenarios where things don't really go right. I agree with you, but I, I see it as monetary. It's not there because it's a promise that we'll get to Mars. It's a book published in America in 1950. It's telling us what we should be doing so that we can get um, the right kind of world. Nobody reads 1984 and thinks, well, that didn't work out because <laughs> you know, it, was, it, was, it was a warning. And Bradbury is clearly criticizing all sorts of things in America today, as including the technology getting ahead of us, as he says. Worked out for North Korea. They've got 1984 down really well. Well, I was thinking about another book that came out the year before this, um, Earth Abides, which demonstrates... That was 48. That was 49? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I looked it up just now. Uh, but you know, kind of has that, a similar theme, you know, if you destroy something, what lasts, and it's not humanity that lasts, it's the 
natural environment. To me, I was seeing similarities there. I find that fascinating. To me, the uh, the, the the most powerful image that stayed in my mind. This is like you, Jesse. You know, as a kid, this is what stuck. Well, I read mm-hmm. when I first read Earth Abides back when uh, when the world was new. Um, <laughs> what what I came away most powerfully with was the image of the main character sitting on the uh, the the broken roadbed of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, now in his old age, knowing that the bridge was still there, but it was broken, and hoping that the uh, the society, which had now gotten down to bows and arrows, um, that the society helped gather and sustain, albeit technologically much uh, regressed from what he had grown up with, might itself be able to begin a new evolution toward a new and better future. So the, it was this old man's hope that his life had not been in vain, knowing whether or not the bridge would or would not serve. But under him, the water kept passing. That was uh, a question. And to me, the, the water in the canals at the end of Millionaire Picnic poses the same kind of question, especially if I look at it the way you are, Jenny, to say that it's not a promise that it really, really, it really will be good, but only that it can be good if we learn to stop doing certain things. Right. No, I would agree with that. No, Bradbury, I think, is <laughs> he is somebody who you can sort of feel in his stories. Some, some authors, I read them, I get no sense of, of what, the, what the author is like. And other authors, I read them and that's all I get. You know, like if I read an H.P. Lovecraft story, uh, they're all exactly like how I imagine he thinks of himself. You know, even even the characters, they're not, uh, you know, particularly, you know, on one side or the other. They're all using his language and they're using his philosophy and they're using. And I, I think that's the same with Bradbury, you know. He, the way he puts sentences together with color and and uh, repetition and word choice and all that, it's even when he's got these horrific scenes, like there was a guy, I can't remember which story it is, but there's a, a guy who's killing all the other uh, rocket men who have landed on Mars. I guess it's in the second expedition. Right. Spander is his name, right? Spender, Spender, right. And the moon so, will still be as bright, I think it's called. Is that, is that the one? Okay, yeah. That's right. Yep. Captain Wilder. Okay, so the the scene between him and Captain Wilder right before they come for him, uh, it's it's like a... It's a, a very interesting meeting because Spender doesn't really want to do what he's doing, but he has to, but he also doesn't think he should be doing it, but he also, you know, like... The, the interaction between the characters, they're all Bradbury, right? They're all, uh, and, you know, the, the ones who are, you know, we're going to shoot him in the head. You know, that's, that's his instinct, the way I see it. That's his instinct to be, to be cruel. And, and the, the captain's instinct to, to, to try and minimize the, the horror of it and the, and the instinct to, you know, to, to shoot all these, these, 
tomb tomb robbers sort of guys, you know. Uh, they're all sort of him working out his, not working it out, that's wrong, trying to get us to a certain emotional place that he he experienced. That he's saying, I, I have this feeling, how do I work it out in a story? How do I replicate that in, in the uh, reader? And he's really good at that, because I always end up feeling, I think, the emotion he is trying to give me. I'm not sure I... You know, he's right. He's not a science fiction writer, at least not in this book. There's no, there's very little, I think he says there's no, there's no uh, physics that work in any of these stories except for maybe one introduction. But it really feels like a, it feels like a, a good poem in that it does put you in the emotional state that the author is intending you to be in. And it's he's you know it's sometimes described as nostalgic, Mm -hmm. you know that he's nostalgic for his youth. He's nostalgic. It is kind of like that, but it's also um, it's just I think a way of seeing the world too, Um, because the 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 horror of of um, the moon be still as bright is is comes back in Usher too, but the approach is different. I mean, if you look at the the school shootings and and stuff, you know, that's what's really happening, right? Some guys going crazy, shooting a bunch of people, and and yet Ray Bradbury doesn't do it exactly that way. He he does it in an emotional way, uh, so we see it from both sides and every side. Bradbury on uh, wrote uh, um, this is uh, he's referring to. Uh, a book of his called Farewell Summer that was published in 2006, but he began writing it in 1944. So not everything that he wrote just turned out to be wonderful immediately. Um, mm-hmm. But he says, writing it uh, was a response to my ganglion and my antenna. Mm-hmm. I do not use my intellect to write my stories and books. I have a gut reaction to the things that my subconscious gives me. These are gifts that arrive early mornings, and I get out of bed and hurry to the typewriter to get them down before they vanish. It seems to me that's a two-edged sword. Um, when, when Bradbury is at his lyric apex, whether it is a horrible scene of violence you were just describing, Jesse, or it is a gorgeous scene of discovery as at the end of Million Year Picnic, he moves us. He really moves us. But if you need to think about what it is that he's written, it turns out that the best you can do is call it a fairy tale. Yeah. Um, and in fact, when he first became uh, widely lionized, after the publication of this book, uh, the first person to get a, a full page review in the New York Times book review as a science fiction writer rather than this is an interesting book. Um, people who thought of themselves as science fiction writers like Isaac Asimov absolutely were absolutely furious because they said, this guy is not a science fiction writer. He's a fantasy writer. And Bradbury himself has said, by the way, that 
he's 95% a fantasy writer and 5% a science fiction writer. It's just that he mm-hmm. sets most of his fantasies off Earth, and therefore people say, oh, well, it must be science fiction. Yeah. But he's, he's appealing to our emotions, and he does it with gorgeous lyrical power. So uh, I think he would have agreed to exactly with your own assessment. Well, I, I, I did read the introduction, so I'm uh, sort of aware of you know his his approach to to writing. But it it seems like you know you don't read Ray Bradbury when you want to read Asimov. They're not interchangeable. You can't you know if you're in a Bradbury mood, you don't you know you don't swap them in because they're they're doing completely different kinds of of writing. Um. And it's, you know, it's hard to uh, to look at them other than as, you know, something beautiful to enjoy. I don't think you can break them down uh, for, you know, is, is he right about this? Because there's not really anything to be right about, right? There's not, did he make a mistake in his, there's nothing to be, there's no mistakes that could be made other than, you know, he didn't replicate the feeling in you but he's he's so good at it that you know like usher too i think is a is a beautiful piece that i want to give to people who want to censor stuff because that's how i feel about you know censorship is yeah i, I want to grind you up in, in one of those uh, those po- <laughs> hey, <great> idea. <laughs> those po machines you know that's that's exactly how i feel about it because you know you're doing one of the worst things you can possibly do and and yet I'm not sure. Just giving them the story, they they will, they will suddenly come to my point of view. I I think he's, he's, he he has that feeling, and he's expressed it so that now I can point to that and say Usher two, Usher two, or 1984. You know, like you you say. Um, but yeah, it's it. <laughs> his character is, um, you know, he's getting his revenge, but he's not changing the world. It's the the piece itself that might help change the world. You know, I don't know, at the same time, though, there were definitely moments, and I'm not really a stickler for real science, but mm. there were these moments that kept taking me out of the story, and the first one happens on the second page, and it says she watched the blue sky of Mars, and I was like, wait, would the sky of Mars be blue? And it is blue. <laughs> well, there were little moments like that, and the one where the trees magically grew overnight, and... um. I, it did kind of serve to take me out of it a little bit, I have to say. Well, the the actual sky of Mars is blue sometimes. Is it? Interesting. Sometimes. Yeah. It made me want to go research not, it, actually. <laughs> not that his, you know, his Mars is not our Mars, but... Sure. Um, yeah, it's completely not. But yeah, it's it's a blue blue sometimes and pink sometimes. Hmm. Um, it, it, well, according to what was known in 1950, um, most of what we see in the Martian Chronicles, uh, putting aside the Martians themselves, most of what we see in the Martian Chronicles was already, was at that time believed to be impossible. Yeah. So There's no canals up there. They know there are no canals. Um, they know that there is not a breathable atmosphere. So that one, you know, as you say, the trees grew overnight, the Johnny Appleseed section. Um, mm, that the, was fun. Right. The Green Morning, I think, is the name of that, that segment. Um before that character plants the seeds and the trees grow overnight, he's still walking around with that breathing apparatus. 
I mean, it's 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 clear that it was a fairyland to begin with, and by fairy tale intervention, it becomes an even better fairy tale, an even better fairy land for to make it a good place for humanity to regain itself. You know, the the epigraph of the whole book. Um, I asked Ray Bradbury about this, and uh, he claims he he says he did make it up. The epigraph for the whole book is, "It is good to renew." Note the word new. One's wonder, said the philosopher. Space travel has again made children of us all. Mm. The book is about undoing original sin. I'm not saying that's all it's about, but it is about undoing original sin. We, we, we get to America, Earthmen get to America, and they have this, this land that they get to inhabit. What do they do about the native inhabitants? Right in the real America, Columbus gave them infected blankets, and smallpox decimated the the populations. Right, and then we hunted and killed, and then we had wars so that the the Native Americans uh, were reduced in population and and in cultural strength to something horrible, horrible. That and slavery of Africans um, are the the founding sins of the real America. But what happens on Mars is that unwittingly chickenpox spreads among the Martians and removes the population, a childhood disease that was not given intentionally, so that magically we wind up having another America, great green breast of the new world, um, as ours. It's, it's, a, it's a gift. It's a, it's a fairy tale promise. Yeah, there's the the I guess it's in this the story called The Martian, where the the Martian turns up and he 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 has this. They all have this psychic ability to to take on the aspect of the person that wants to believe you are that person, um, and that that uh, you know it's the noble savage, right? <laughs> he they take on people say, you know, this is how they are when they're gone. Right. This is how they are. Uh, this is, is what they are, at, you know, when they're still around. <laughs> and uh, it is, it is very much, I think more of a, more of a symbolic reimagining of, of Bradbury's America, you know, um, a, a lot of, a lot of, uh, Ray Bradbury stories, the ones that aren't even in here, they make me think about, you know, the way he interacts with the world, the story he has called The Pedestrian, where, you know, he he tells the story of how he got that story, which is he's just walking down the street and cop is asking him, hey, buddy, what are you doing? Right. Uh, and he takes that, you know, imagination. He, he was a weird guy, right? He doesn't like to drive. He lives in Los Angeles. That doesn't really fit together very well. It's not that but, he doesn't like to drive. He doesn't know, didn't know how right. to drive. Right, but he could have learned, right? Oh, absolutely. Right. He chose not to. He's a strange guy. But not strange bad, just strange very different. And and so when he he has this strangeness that he has, uh, it it rubs against the society and he can talk about that as being, you know, his love of libraries is, is much stronger than a regular, a regular person. You get Fahrenheit 
if you, you know, if you uh, walk down the street and you get harassed by a cop just for walking down the street, you get uh, the pedestrian. And, and I think, you know, a combination of him reading Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, which I hadn't read prior to a couple years ago, uh, re- that's that's what I see a lot more in this book is you know the the crystal cities and the and the Martian uh, there's no princesses right exactly but the Martian um, high culture uh, that the closer you actually look at it it actually looks more like uh, American culture <laughs> you know at the beginning when all those people are knocking on those doors those those the captain and the crew of the first expedition or is it no oh, second, second expedition, expedition. Sex, second expedition's knocking on those doors i was thinking you know these people just don't I, I thought that that story was about him saying look up in space we could go to the moon and people are saying what what are you talking about that's not interesting i think you want somebody else you're selling to the wrong person and of course they you know they end up in the insane asylum um, that's him, I think, sort of saying, you know, I'm not crazy, but people are treating me cr- like I'm crazy because I want to talk about Mars and, and going to the moon and, uh, all the things that he thinks are interesting. Dinosaurs, right? That's what I took away from that segment. I think that's all there. I think there are a lot of other things there too, though. Um, but that's actually third expedition. That was first published as Mars is heaven. Right. Yeah. And, uh, the changes that he makes between its original publication and Chronicles, um, I think, help us see him both as a lyric writer and as someone trying to make a novel. Um, and I guess I, I, but I, what I'd like to do, um, if I may, is, is highlight something here that supports what you're saying very strongly, but maybe doesn't get noticed explicitly by a lot of people. Science mm-hmm. fiction. Um, as the name suggests, has knowledge in it somewhere. You know, you're supposed to know things. Science means knowing, and uh, omniscience means knowing everything. Uh, And so the imagery that goes with knowing, uh, you would expect to run everywhere through science fiction, and it does in most science fiction. That imagery has to do with sight, light, and fire, and it goes all the way back to knowing their nakedness um, and seeing that the apple was good to eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you see what I mean, you know, uh, a man of vision, he had perspective, um, all of these things, um, these words in every language have to do with knowledge. The dominant imagery in the Martian Chronicles is not of sight, it's of music and sound. So, for example, at the end of Mars is Heaven, um, in the original, right, in Mars is Heaven, after they bury the, uh, the, the, the bodies of the, the Earthmen that they've killed, it says, uh, and the funeral, uh, after the funeral, the brass band slammed and banged into town and the crowd stood around and waved and shouted as the rocket was torn to pieces and strewn about and blown up. But once Bradbury gets the whole vision of the work in his mind, he revises that. And in the book, it says, as the last paragraph, the brass band playing Columbia, the gem of the ocean, 
marched and slammed back into town, and everyone took the day off. Mm. Uh, one of the differences between those two paragraphs is that there's a cacophony in the first, but there's actual music in the second. Mm. In the first, the Martians just win. They destroy humans. But if you look at the Martian Chronicles as a book, when the humans are outnumbered by the Martians, the Martian mental capacities allow them to win. Once mm. they are decimated by disease and the humans outnumber the Martians, the humans win. But because they're, and when they're balanced, we have that one, the Martian, where there's just one guy. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. we have the night meeting, where we have an isolated human and an isolated Martian meeting across time, 50,000 years apart. They look down the valleys and see each other's towns. Right? When they're just alone, they meet perfectly well. But human beings are technological in this book, but Martians are more emotional. But in the book, as opposed to Mars is Heaven, the original publication of that story, the Martians are now infected by having been exposed to human minds. So with all the humans dead, at the end of April 2000, the third expedition, the Martians could have just walked away, you know, gone back to town, having disposed of the corpses. But no, they play Columbia, the gem of the ocean. They are made into people, beings, who have adopted the music of American celebration, Columbia, the gem of the ocean. And if we look through the book as a whole, even when music can't play, we see it in that, in that particular story. They look through the porthole, they're wondering whether or not to be able to go out on the Martian landscape. And they look through the porthole and they see a town. They go to the town, they look in the window, and the window allows them to see a piano with sheet music. Mm. And the sheet music is for beautiful Ohio. Even when they can't hear the music, it's music that dominates rather than intellectual knowledge. Walter mm -hmm. Grip is, is attracted to uh, that woman um, because he hears Genevieve, sweet Genevieve. You know, mm -hmm. It's everywhere. It's music. The ears are full rather than, than the eyes taking particular knowledge. And I think that by making this book fully lyrical, he is actually asking us to do what you were talking about, Jesse. He doesn't want us to think about whether this is good, bad, or indifferent. He wants us to feel what should be good and what should be bad and understand that there's the possibility of beauty. Um, and I think, frankly, that uh, he does not generate a very useful political tract. But no, <laughs> he, sure, he sure does convey beauty. Yeah, I, 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 you know, flipping through the book, it's it's just like it is. It's poetry. It, it's so wonderful. Listen to this, just uh, from Usher too. Uh, is the color right? Is it desolate and terrible? Yeah, very desolate. Very terrible. The walls are bleak. Amazingly so. The tarn is it black and lurid enough? Most incredibly black and lurid. And the sedge. We've dyed it, you know. Is it the proper gray and ebon? Hideous. Like, <laughs> I just, I love that the, he's so, he's so, you know, the imagery that comes out in the color and, and the, the, the word choice. There was a segment I was listening to last night, the, the last part 
uh, right before the end in, um, what's that? It's the moon, no. What's it called? The second to last one. Soft Rains. Ah, yes, there will come Soft Rains. And I remember it's when the fire starts. The fire lay in the bed, and it right. stood in the window, right? And it the, the whole fire is alive, but the house is alive too, and they're fighting each other. And it was just, you know, like, wow. <laughs> He's got no characters other than the mice angrily cleaning up after the dying dog, which is, of course, that's another Earth Abides thing, right? <laughs> practically, right. Uh, practically every uh, post-apocalyptic novel has a dog that symbolizes the, the sadness of the entire loss of the human race. Oh. Uh, it's it's uh it's 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 a beautiful book, but I'm not sure you can learn anything other than other than Ray Bradbury's a terrific writer, you know. Well, um, I mean, and, so, sometimes the characters have these long monologues where you can, you can kind of oh, yeah. see what uh, Ray thinks about yeah. uh, preserving culture or keeping us from blowing ourselves up with atom bombs or something. Mm-hmm. So sometimes he, he explicitly says what he's what he means. Yeah, I. It, you know, I agree with him, but it, he hasn't argued me into it. He's, we, we were in sympathy in the first place, I think. I, I think he really is, without perhaps himself thinking about it, um, certainly in, in, in my reading of his stuff and a few conversations with him, he never acknowledged this. Um, he really wants us to get things without being filtered through intellect. Um, when the Martian called Tom, uh, the one who gets who changes uh, willy nilly because all the different humans project his fires onto him. When we first see him in that uh, that segment of the book, um, he tells the uh, the the man of the couple um, not to worry that um, his wife won't be scared uh, because he sang to them while they were asleep. Mm. And the music will make him understand. When we see the two Earth children playing, disrespecting the corpses of the dead Martians, the desiccated Martians, that segment is called the musicians. And they mm. play the, the bones of their chests, uh, the Martian corpse chests, as if they were xylophones. And flakes of their bone go uh, flying off into the air, like the flames you're talking about uh, of the house um, again and again we we hear and see things that are musical and uh, he wants us to be immersed in the atmosphere and feel it which is why the opening rocket summer says not that the rocket ship helped us explore and learn and bring back new knowledge he says the rocket made climates it changed winter to summer it was, it was magical. It made climates. So the music comes through the ears. It's ambient, and that's what Bradbury works on. Uh, Jenny would probably agree. <laughs> well, I was noticing more the moments where there wasn't any sound, um, because it felt like the music was synonymous with American culture. And then there are those stories where, like Walter and Genevieve, where he can hear the phone ringing from six houses away um, because there is no music. And it, I don't know, that was really powerful to me, kind of like the reminder of the emptiness and the foreignness of a different planet. Until we make it ours. 
Right, exactly. But there are those reminders throughout the stories, I think. Well, the problem is us. Spender tells us that uh, before he goes on his killing spree. He says, there were tapes down there with music on it, music that's 50,000 years old, and you could hear it, but you won't. Mm. Yeah. It's uh, that that part is very I mean, it's all really resonant, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess, is the word for it. But, um, you know, uh, the other thing that struck me as I was finishing the book off last night uh, for the second time was the parallels between what happens in the off season and what happens in the second expedition. So in the second expedition, all the the rocket men are rebuffed until they, you know, eventually end up in the proper place for them, the insane asylum. Um, and in that case, the, the, the rocket men are not believed because, uh, they, they're acting crazy, right? They seem to be acting crazy. Um, now later on in the off season, when all the Martians are dead, and it's basically their ghosts uh, giving them the deeds, to, giving uh, the guy the deeds to the the planet. Um, he's he's killing them and won't listen to them in almost the same way, right? So it's like the the human getting the revenge, uh, but it's the ending is uh, you know it's like almost an inver- inverted or. Um, you know, inverted color image of, of the other story. And it was, it was like, you know, Bradbury has it every way, right? He, he, <laughs> he has the feeling of, of, you know, being a, being a jerk and also being uh, the subject of a jerk. Right. And it, it just struck me as being, you know, a kind of, even though the, they're not exactly resolved the same way and, it's just the feelings are, it's like a uh, re- repeated, uh, I'm not a music guy, so I can't really say, but one of those, mu- you know, repetitions in music that you get. A theme. Da, 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 da. Yeah, you know, it's, the, it's that coming, come back to the beginning. And it's not the beginning, it's, it's, you know, near the beginning, and the other one's near the end, but it felt, this, it felt like it was similar. The chorus? Yeah, something that's a... a it's a reverse of the chorus or something. Uh, I, I don't have this electronically. I'm not picking it out quickly enough. So, Do I recall correctly that Sam Parkhill um, opening up his hot dog stand um, misquotes Emma Lazarus? You know, Give me your poor, your hungry or something. Mm, let me look. See if I can find that. Uh, it's searching... Uh, from the deep freeze, he fetched rimmed cartons of beans and strawberries, 20-year-olds. Nope, Lazarus come forth, he thought. Nope, that's not the right section. No, no I don't think the word Lazarus was there. Emma Lazarus, you know, the, the poem of the yeah. Statue of Liberty. Right. Uh, it's called the, the New Colossus, I think, is the poem, right? Right, but doesn't Sam Parkhill say something like, send me your this or your that, and he's, he's being just radically crass. Yeah, he he is, you know, he says, I'm a New Yorker. Uh, hmm. 
he's not he's not the ideal person to be interacting with you know <laughs> the 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 peace peaceable artistic aliens right my, my point I mean, is that I'm, I'm hoping that, that that's right um, um, that we're supposed to see that Americans have perverted their ideals and that that hot dog stand of Sam Park Hills is an epitome of perverted American ideals. So we're supposed to get beyond that, and what we need to do is revert. Right? It goes along with the, the technology got 150 years ahead of us. By the way, I noticed in that section, uh, Sam, she called his name for the first time in days. Sam, he looked up at the sky. Well, she said, she glanced around for a minute or so in silence. Then briskly, she flapped a wet towel over her arm switch on more lights, turn up the music, open the doors. <laughs> There'll be another batch of customers along in about a million years. Yeah. It's only the music is ever going to be what's going to save them, but of course it won't because the last line is it looks like it's going to be an off-season. Good old wonderful Earth, send me your hungry and your starved. Something, something. How does that poem go? <laughs> send me your hungry old Earth. Here's Sam Hot Park Hill, his hot dogs all boiled, his chili cooking, everything neat as a pin. Come on, you earth, send me your rocket. I think Bradbury there is actually saying, you know, this is Sam Park Hill's idea of what that poem was. And mm -hmm. clearly we know that poem was not, you know, send them to me so we can sell them hot dogs. It was right. send them to us so that they can find sustenance uh, so yeah it, it it is a book of criticism in that sense it doesn't give you a good political program but it is telling you what you shouldn't do he he but see i think the funny part is you know ray bradbury doesn't like the guy who's selling the hot dog stand you know we don't we're not supposed to like him and yet he also loves hot dogs right <laughs> you, you, you gotta know he 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 he's not he's not trying to be consistent about you know hot dogs are bad they're they're crass American culture no it's like hot dogs are wonderful uh, crassness is terrible did the people have the same attitude towards hot dogs back then that they do now like now we just think it's garbage maybe oh back no then. oh take me out to the bowl game Americana oh yeah <laughs> buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks right ballpark franks even today. They pump when you cook them. <laughs> Somewhere here I have a poem of Bradbury's on America. I mean, if you want to know what he, what he really thinks of America, I'll try to find it. Sure. Um, and he published it well. I'll tell you that. Jenny, I is this it. the first time for you for this book? Yeah, it is. And wow. I, I wasn't sure what I was expecting, but it wasn't what I was expecting. <laughs> You'd read Bradbury before, I assume. Yeah, I've read Fahrenheit 451 several times throughout my life, but I think that's probably it, other than, oh, maybe something about a carnival. Dark carnival? Yeah, probably that one. October or something? Oh, maybe that too. I don't something know. Wicked, something wicked this way comes. Yeah, that's the thing oh, I'm okay. thinking of, yeah. But other than that, you know, so I was kind of surprised. Um, I, I don't know, some of it just seems so sad. I didn't expect yeah, that. Very mournful. I didn't expect that tone in it. 
I mean, most of the time when you have um, stories or novels about space and Mars in particular, it's all about, well, especially from that era, it's all about all these amazing things we can do and how we conquer it. And, you know, it, and it wasn't really that hard or science fiction that I just assumed it would be. Um, so I actually enjoyed it more than I thought. <laughs> There's a, uh, if you want it. Oh, let's hear it. Yeah. It's, it's called America. Um, <laughs> this was published by Bradbury in May of 2006. We are the dream that other people dream. The land where other people land when late at night, they think on flight and flying here arrive where we fools dumbly thrive ourselves. Refuse to see we be what all the world would like to be. Because we hive within this scheme, the obvious dream is blind to us. We do not mind the miracle we are. So stop our mouths with curses. While all the world rehearses coming here to stay, we busily make plans to go away. How dumb! Newcomers cry, arrive from Chad. You're mad, Iraqis shout. We'd sell our souls if we could be you. How come you cannot see the way we see you? You tread a freedom forest as you please, but damn, you miss the forest for the trees. 10,000 wanderers a week engulf your shore. You wonder what they're shouting's for and why so glad. Run warm those souls. America is bad? Sit down, stare in their faces, see. You be the hoped-for thing a hopeless world would be. In tides of immigrants that this year flow, you still remain the beckoning hearth they'd know. In midnight beds with blueprint, plan, and scheme, you are the dream that other people dream. That bit of cheerleading was published by Bradbury in the Wall Street Journal. In, in 2006, it looks like. That's what I said. May, that's what I said. May not, 2006. Yeah. yeah. So much more recent. But well, it, it's, it's, his incredible notion that America is right. Just get rid of all the stupid parts of it. We're <laughs> misunderstanding it. We Americans are misunderstanding that America is the, you know, we should know we're the perfect place. We're what everybody aspires to. We just happen to be doing it stupidly. Wake up, America. That's what he was saying. That's what Benjamin Driscoll does in The Green Morning. He wakes up, and Mars has become Johnny Appleseed land. Right? Just wake up, America. Here it is, 56 years later. And he's saying the same thing. Yep. He, he's, he's a consistent guy. <laughs> um, there was... Uh I notice uh, one of the reasons I was getting confused, I guess, about why why the stories were having their names changed. It says that you know on the Wikipedia entry, it, it says that you know the, the titles have been changing even more recently than I thought. So instead of you know I Mars, that that story's been reworked and you know changed quite a bit to to be put in here. There's also like the the dates have been changed. So you know, it says the taxpayer, March 2000. Well, March 2000 came and went, so what does the publisher do? Now it's now it's the taxpayer, March 2031. <laughs> and the reason being, it has to be set in the future because it's science fiction. Right? <laughs> but it makes it very confusing when you're trying to refer to a story 
and point to it and say, you know, I'm referring to this story, and then the name of the story changes. It's it, it, it can be very confusing. My student was calling it, yeah, uh, August 2057. And I was like, what, by Ray Bradbury? I don't know that story. And he started describing, and I said, oh, that that's There Will Come Soft Rains. Okay. Um, but somebody's changed, you know, the, the the urge to improve. I guess he must have said okay to it, huh? Well, actually, in the table of contents of what I think is the original printing of the book, um, it's called Chronicles. And so every section begins with a date and then follows the name. And right. August 2026 is then colon, there will come soft rains. Mm-hmm. But now it's August 20, 20, uh, 2057. Uh, I, August 4th, 2057 is what it says. <laughs> Mm. Alas, alas. You know, and there will come soft rains. I still remember that image as a kid of uh, the silhouettes on the house, mm. of uh, the burnt-out silhouettes of the people, like right. like the mother, that's, father, that's, dog, uh, boy, and ball. That's from you know the the real nukes in Chernobyl. <laughs> no, <laughs> not Chernobyl. There, Hiroshima. Yeah, Hiroshima. There are faked ones in Chernobyl, like. Yeah, sorry. Oh, it's art. Okay. It's art there, whereas it, it's it's imitating what really happened other places. Yeah. <laughs> it's a meme. Yeah. That's grim. Well, they had their own kind of disaster there. Yeah. But, yeah, actually, that's a good place where you could sort of imagine what it would be like to be on a abandoned planet. So what do you guys think? If this is a book that... Uh that we feel, but, you know, it, does, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't give you a good reason to arguments. Um, what, what is its staying power? I mean, it's got some images, obviously, that have stuck with us since we were much younger. Um, different ones for different ones of us, I guess. But this book has been widely praised and in print since it was published. We're talking about 63 years now. And um, it has within it, if you take a look at Mars Heaven, A Million Year Picnic, two of the very most reprinted science fiction stories ever, even though they are not really science fiction. What gives this book its, its staying power? Because it's not hard SF, it's uh, more accessible feeling Pros. You don't have to be edu- you don't have to be educated up to it. You know, uh, you can't give a Larry Niven book to somebody who who doesn't know anything about physics because they won't get it. They won't understand the 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 point of the story. Maybe that, so. There's that, but I think it's just really really pretty poetry, and that keeps it from being dated because it's not based on like the science of the time. It's more based on yeah, you know, his own imagination. There's so there's so many stories I can't give to my students because they they you know you you have to have read enough stuff to be able to appreciate what the author is trying to argue uh and in, in this there's there is no argument it's just feeling and color and you you have to have the vocabulary but you don't have to have um the background for it I think well, there's that what were the two most reprinted stories uh, that of his, uh, Mars is Heaven and uh, Millionaire Picnic. 
I think uh, I said they're among the most reprinted. The single most yeah, reprinted okay. story in science fiction is Nightfall, but okay. of the of the top ten or twenty or so, uh, two of them are from this book. Well, that's that that is another story. Nightfall is another story where you don't really have to have that much background to appreciate the point that the author is trying to make. Um, I agree, but it does help if you at least believe the. Uh, the, <laughs> the the physics, you know, the the astronomy that that it's premised on, right? And uh, there are people today who who <laughs> would not appreciate that. So, yeah, you do have to have some education uh, about what's going on and how the universe works. Um, I don't know. It's it's a powerful book. You don't have to be like a hardcore science fiction reader, having read like a hundred other science fiction books. So, so what I'm hearing you guys say is uh, the language is beautiful, and it's and it's and yet it's the book is not demanding, and so that makes it like what McDonald's. <laughs> I don't know. I think for me, what would make me want to read it again is the emotion of it. I think it really connects with you. There's nostalgia, yeah. regret, um, hope, all of those things. Melancholy. I love the melancholy. Yeah, that makes it not McDonald's. Good. Well, I, I wasn't saying it is McDonald's. I'm just trying to. Yeah, I, I felt we needed something more, and you added the ingredient, Jenny. You know, in the beginning, I kind of felt like it was cartoony. Like the characters mm. were just kind of like sketches. But then once I got to the uh, Spendler one, I got more emotionally into it. But before that, yeah, I, I felt like it was kind of cartoonish. There, there's something also going on, you know, like the way it sets up, you know, the first expedition. Uh, well, that's cut off rather quickly, right? We never even see the the, mar- uh, the 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 execution of that of that crew, and then the second expedition they they go very badly wrong, and the third expedition they go wrong. It's like I was thinking, you know, is it Roanoke and, the, you know, trying to found a new colony? And, no, that didn't work. Try again. The Vikings? No, that didn't work. I, I guess I got those two backwards. But yeah. <laughs> um, eventually it takes hold, right? Eventually it takes hold. And yet then later on, everybody goes home except for a couple of misfits. Uh, and yeah, and then I didn't really understand that part. Like if you saw the earth was all on fire, would you like rush to get in a rocket and go back? No, it's I would not, be happy I was away. It's not logical. You you can't look at it that way. It's emotional. Uh, I mean, it's it's just Ray Bradbury. You know, he he paints broadly. He paints a whole planet as America, right? It's not you can't you can't look at it as a you know. Well, that's unrealistic. I can't imagine myself going to fight a war on another planet because he even has that conversation in that in that story where he's talking about going back. He's, he says, you know, nobody's going to go back. It's so far away. And yet the other guy makes an argument and then everybody's gone. Right. right. Then he can have stories where like one person is left. Exactly. Uh, but but also with the ending, I was thinking, you know, there's another way to read it other than just um, other than just it's eventually people get to Mars and and they're renewed. I was thinking, well, <clears throat> Maybe it's circular. It's a circular story in that the, those humans are Martians. And it's not just, look, 
look, we're the Martians now because we're the only ones left. It's, we're the Martians now and we will be again. And then go forward, fast forward a million years and you're at the beginning of the book again. And I, I like to look at it that way because it, it makes it richer. But I didn't look at it that way the first time I read it. I just I just thought of it as, uh, oh, that's cool. The dad's sort of lying to them, but it's also kind of true. No, I don't think that... I, I, first of all, I, I, I like the way you're reading it. I, I don't think that it is supported. Um, it's, not, it's not supported by logic. Right, because, it's, because it's the emotions are telepathic. But, but, but imagistically and philosophically, I think it is supported. It's supported by night meeting where we see that absent their cultures, their surrounding cultures, Martians and humans are the same. They have mm-hmm. the same aspirations and the same desires. Um, I think that's so. Um, I think that the father is not lying. Remember, this is not just Earth. It's America. Not mm-hmm. one of those Earth men is anything but an American, except mm-hmm. for the one guy who's an American who says, when Spender says what's wrong with the other rocket men, he says, oh, yeah, I understand what you mean. Um, Cherokee says, I'm mm-hmm. one-eighth Indian, right? Um, all of these people are Americans. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm sitting here right now um, almost in view of the island my grandparents, my great-grandparents came to, and my grandparents came to to immigrate into America, Right? I don't mm-hmm. think of myself as a Russian. I think mm-hmm. of myself as an American. You get here, you give yourself up to the land, and, you know, where are the Americans? We're here. Where are the Martians? We're here. So what Bradbury was doing was trying to give, create a new world, capital N, capital W. Mm. And he does it not by logic. He does it, as I say, through, through this, you're saying is beautiful poetry. And I agree. Jenny, you're saying it's this wonderful emotion, and I agree. But I would point out again that he captures it in music, in that very first expedition, which is written as if it were a fairy tale, right, with mm. wine crystals and mm-hmm. rifle guns shooting golden bees, right? Why is it that the wife goes off? Because in her mind, she's heard, drink to me only with thine eyes. You know, I mean, she's, she's hearing love music, and she goes wandering away. You said we don't even see what happens. Of course we don't see it. We don't need to see it. It's what we hear that mm. makes the difference. She was dreaming of rock cuts and, and couldn't resist. <laughs> oh, if she'd only known about rock cuts and true sexuality. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, he's so handsome when he comes off that spaceship, though. You gotta. I think he was ambidextrously <laughs> sexual. <laughs> but I, I like the audiobook in that story too. Like he just waves his hand over the, a silver page and then it uh, talks or it plays music or something. Mm-hmm. Sounds nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should make that. Which audio version did you end up listening to? I, I, I read the print. I read the print, and I also uh, listened to the Stephen Hoy read uh, uh, Blackstone Audio Edition, hmm. which which was very nice. Um, I also listened to the introduction read by Bradbury, which is uh, available as a separate audiobook. Um, the entire thing read by Bradbury, I, I think it's, it seems a little short, so maybe it's abridged. But yeah, Audible has like five versions uh, of the audiobook plus an audio drama. 
Yeah, it's it's well it's well loved. Mm-hmm. But uh, is there an ebook now? Does somebody mention that there is? He's changed his mind near the end that he's going to allow ebooks. That's a, well, I know Fahrenheit 451 is an ebook, but I couldn't find the Martian Chronicles ebook. Hmm. I mean, Bradbury seemed like a, a luddite, like he was kind of against new technology. He's a poet. Right. He did you change his mind, but that doesn't mean he released them all yet. Right. <laughs> when I uh, discuss Bradbury in my class on on campus, I show the students a, uh, a I mean, I project on the screen something that I uh, pulled out of uh, Time magazine uh, in uh, let's see, 1982. Uh, this was it's it's a photograph of Ray Bradbury sitting in an airplane, uh, absolutely the, the poster boy for white knuckles. I mean, he's, he's holding both arm grips, his hands are tense, he's got his teeth, like trying to smile into the camera, gritting <laughs> his teeth together, and there's a stewardess uh, trying to help him put a seatbelt on. And why does Time Magazine show this? Because here it is, he's, he's 60 years old, 62 I guess, he was born in 1920. He's 62 years old. Not only did he never learn to drive, although he lived in Los Angeles from the middle of his early teen years on, this is his first airplane flight. It's 1992. He's a <laughs> world-famous author. He's, why is he doing it? Because he was the main artistic consultant for Walt Disney, for Disney World. Uh, for, for Disneyland. And then he helped with the design of Disney World. This was to be the opening of uh, a new uh, part of, of Epcot Center. And he had to get there on time. So he finally, finally went into an airplane. He came back from Florida to Los Angeles by train. I mean, it was, he was such a Luddite that National News Magazine had to show us that he had finally gotten into an aircraft. I guess they didn't have a monorail from his house. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. That would have been nice. Yeah. Isn't Harlan Harlan Ellison like that? He doesn't ride uh, ride airplanes, but he loves rockets, right? He loves rockets. uh, Tell me, Dr. Freud, what do you make of that? Yeah, well, <laughs> I would say I would say that you know he's just a weird guy who we're happy happy to have had for on the earth for a long time because he wrote a lot of great stuff. Oh, he was marvelous. He was marvelous. But yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of other strange people who don't have as big a profile. You know, <laughs> isn't Harlan Elson kind of the same way, like anti new technology? I think he's just anti anti the web, and he sort of dismisses it as as um, I don't know a waste of time. And certainly, there are a lot of people who waste their time on the internet. Not the people who listen to this podcast, but never everyone, else. <laughs> never our listeners. <laughs> well, I, I would like to give you guys a chance to to go back if you know, would to. The original issue of the book not cohering. Um, are there pieces of this book that you think uh, 
let me let me back up. Uh, the second, the first expedition is called Yilla, right? Y L L A. Bradbury uh, was self-educated in a sense. He graduated from Hollywood High School, and he never had any formal education after that. But he absolutely loved reading, read like mad. He wrote the screenplay for Moby Dick. Um, he, he he worked in the movies. No matter what you say about technology, um, and he had his own TV show. He had his own TV show. Although I don't believe he built the TV. Uh, <laughs> now, the, Moby Dick was written by a fellow named uh, Melville, and the book that Melville published just before Moby Dick, if I recall correctly, is Marty, M-A-R-D-I. Marty, as I recall, it's a book nobody reads anymore, myself included, but uh, I did read it once upon a time. Uh, Marty is a book set in the South Pacific, and there's a fellow who is trying to, uh, to, to find this goddess that he knows about. And I have an image in my mind of her just uh, leaping the waves like a dolphin, going from island to island, and him trying to find her. It's a big, big book him trying to find this goddess. And the goddess's name is Y-I-L-L-A-H. Mm. Yilla is this absolutely fantastic, um, spiritual object of all desire in this book by um, one of the great American authors who we know Bradbury read and, and deeply admired. I can't help but think that Yilla, being the name of the second segment of this book, is for somebody who would get it a reference to Melville. And yet there's nothing in here that tells you, you know, look for a Melville book. Um, the way there is in Sam Parkhill saying, what was that poem? What was that poem? At least that's a hint that maybe there's a reference going on. I'm wondering if maybe not in a, a technical logical, mathematical way, I'm wondering if there isn't some sort of larger cultural sense that Bradbury aims for to make this book cohere, to fit into American culture. And if that's the case, what I would like to ask you is, is there any part that doesn't fit? Because if there is a part that doesn't fit, we ought to figure out why. But Mm -hmm. if there is no part that doesn't fit, then this really is a unified book. Well, I, I don't think that... I, I think the argument that you made about having the the, the, the scenes back on Earth um, make a lot more sense now that I see it as a pattern like that. I, I sort of... I forget about the, the stuff back on Earth because it, they're so short, other than that one, which I think of... you know. Most of the ways that I think people encounter this story now, or at least the, the the students that I see, they're not seeing it as a as a whole book. They're just reading short stories from it, and because they can be taken out of the the greater whole, they can they can be seen as you know complete and unique unto themselves, and it's because it is a fix up or I don't know how how it's organized, but however it's organized as a book, it it, it, it works perfectly fine. I, I can't say that there's 
there, there's something that totally doesn't fit. But it it's not only about Mars, right? It's <laughs> it's also about. I mean, it is an American book. I I think even more so than like um, uh, Fahrenheit four five one, which I think is more universal. It's it's uh, it's an American book. I think it's uh, all those hot dogs. How can you? Um, the the only other things that you know. I think I think it's just an American book. So yeah, it works. Great, Jenny, Tam. I can't what? think of one that stuck out as not fitting. Um, I definitely was surprised by a few, like the one that starts with the line about the robots. Mm. I mean, that's one of the most significant stories, though, in the end. That, that, that's from Usher 2, mm-hmm. where it says, full grown without memory, the robots waited. When I first read that, I was like, wait, what? Robots? <laughs> I just wasn't expecting it, but yeah. There's a lot of robots in this book. Yeah, in the end there are. But I can't Take think it. of a story that didn't fit. Because Usher 2 kind of stands out in tone, like we were saying. Yeah. I mean, I, I always just hand that story separately to people and say, hey, check this one out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or the one with the hot dogs. What's the, which, which, which is the one with the, the last man on Mars uh, with his wife and children who are, who are uh, that's robots? The, that's the long years. The long years, okay. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I like about that story is that, the, that when the captain comes back, and, and realizes that it, they're just robots, um, and he, he's supposed to decommission them, but he just can't, <laughs> even though they're robots. They're, decommission and is, is murder. Exactly, because he he takes them as human, even though he knows they're not, and that's that's a wonderful recognition of the possibility. Uh, there is something of uh, you know, Bradbury and Philip K. Dick had a kind of uh, uh, sympathetic. Um, feelings about things. Uh, very, very empathic uh, people. You know, very sensitive to uh, to things. And, and one of the things that shows up in in this book that also shows up in a lot of other Philip K. Dick stories is uh, the the contempt for uh, litterers, <laughs> people who throw things on the ground and walk away as if you know somebody else will clean it up. Um, they both hated that and they would you know it is a contempt for crassness and a love of music you know and there's a lot of robots in this book but we don't think of them as you know it's not a philosophical book in the way that you know the electric ant is or um, do androids dream of electric sheep it's not about uh, getting into, into the minds of uh, well, how do you know you're not a robot sort of thing? It's it's more like we sh- we don't know whether people are robots or not, maybe, but we should treat them nicely because that's the proper action. Right. Yeah. It, with no explanation as to why it's the proper action. You know, there's no philosophical grounding for it. It's just a feeling. And it's... Yeah. it's, it's uh, I'm very sympathetic to it. I, I can't argue as to why, but it is. Well, I, I, I'd like to recur to the notion of, of the, the prominence of music as opposed to sight. Bradbury has a book called I Sing the Body Electric. That's a very different title from mm. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? 
right? He's yeah. got singing in there. And that particular title, I Sing the Body Electric, is itself a lift from a poem by Walt Whitman, who is this great, great um, poet of American inclusiveness. Mm. I contain multitudes, right? I contradict myself, so I contradict myself. So Bradbury is just, you know, it's the music. It's the music. He wants it all in there. If, if the robots are playing music, if the robots are tape recorders, we want them. <laughs> it's funny in that story how they don't look for an off button for the family. They, they, he hands them a, another guy a gun. He says, oh, go shoot the mother and the kids. And he's like, I can't do it. Yeah. I mean, don't they have, just have like a button on the back? No. But I guess Bradbury thinks of them as people. Do you remember the way they're, the, they're described? There's a, a lot of detail about how they look, and especially the mother, you know, how her arm had a beautiful turn. <laughs> you know, it's like the curve. And hey, they're she, people she handy in every, every respect, so they don't have a switch, right? There's no switch. It's all internal. And, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful image to see, to imagine those people still on Mars, still making gingerbread and... Still having tea and laughing at dinner, even though uh, they're all dead. Everybody's dead. Uh, it's it's a sort of a recurring image of that, you know, the family that that I, I think there's a Twilight Zone episode that's like that. The guy builds a wife and and uh, can't uh, leave her. I think some of these stories have been on the Twilight Zone. It's possible. It's possible. Are you thinking of Helen O'Loy? Um. I it's I don't think it was an adaptation of Helen O'Loy, at least not one with that name. Oh. But that that's uh, that's got a different feel to it as well. I think. Are there stories that were not included in the Martian Chronicles that should have been? Because I believe there's a lot of other stories by Mar about Mars that he wrote. Is there, and is there like an other Mars collection? In the book, um, there's a way in the middle of the air um, tells us uh, about the American blacks going off to uh, right. right. That's what I was thinking of. And uh, to me, that that actually is one of those political, and it's important to me um, because it. helps remind us that slavery is as well as genocide uh, something that America needs to overcome to to live up to the promise that Bradbury believes America has and that I think we all would love to believe that America has there is a follow-up story to that one um, which I think is called the other foot um, in which Americans are able to put together just enough resources to uh, send one more rocket to Mars to ask the people there for help because Earth has done such a terrible uh, amount of self-destruction. And they get there to discover that the dominant people on Mars are those who went from way in the middle of the air. Um, so now... Yeah, there's a one white man on Mars and everyone else is black, I think. Exactly. And he's asking them to help, help Earth. Um, I won't say what the answer is, but... If I recall correctly, uh, that book, that story, A, was published before the Martian Chronicles came out, and Bradbury excluded it from the American edition as not fitting. Hmm. But the British edition of the Martian Chronicles, which came out almost exactly at the same time, 
Um, he didn't control the copyright in Britain, and mm. the British publisher included that story in the British version of the Martian Chronicles. And I think that the British edition made a mistake because the point of that story is to see how Mars can come back and now help Earth as if mm. it were Earth-centered. And it undercuts the overall pattern of learning that we should be remaking our world. Mm -hmm. and so uh, I can't tell you that there is a story that shouldn't, you know, that was just wrong. But there is one that was written that was included one place and not in the other. That to me argues that that when Bradbury had control over it, he was thinking about what to put in and what not to put in, even though mm -hmm. he had other stories available. Hmm. There's uh, in in the uh, in uh, the Illustrated Man, isn't it? In the Illustrated Man, that they have the story of the fire balloons. I, it's been a long time since I read the Illustrated Man. I again, I only remember uh, certain segments. Yeah. Well, it, it, Jenny will probably get this right because you're great at this. But my recollection is the fire balloons is. Um, Martian presences um, helping human beings. I sort of am mixing it up with, with Michael Valentine Smith and the Moon is a Harsh in a Stranger in a Strange Land. You know, but there are Martians there. Uh, I, I don't know if if the Fire Balloons was written before the Martian Chronicles was published, but it certainly is another Mars story, and it certainly doesn't fit in. The Martian Chronicles, and it wasn't published in the Martian Chronicles. It's in my version. Fire balloons? Yeah, the one about all the priests that go to Mars to look for new sins. It's in. Oh no! It's in That's the Martian it. Chronicles. It's in my version. Yeah, yeah, it's in the one I've got as well. What's that? What's that segment called? The fire balloons. Fire balloons? It's not called that in mine. I it's, don't have that one. It's not, there is there is a segment in which uh, they they do talk about sin uh, on Mars, but that's not in the paper book I've got. It's in the audio book. And it's, so I don't, it's not in the original publication of the Martian Chronicles either. It's not the one uh, Bradbury, Bradbury put together. Wow. Because uh, I have in a the, brand new version of the paperback, and it's in there. In the Wikipedia <laughs> entry, it comes between the shore and interim. Like time timeline wise, mm. wow! But I don't have it in mind. Mine's a reprint of the original. So. Weird. I'm not. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I have. It's not in my paper book, but it is in the audiobook. Wow, they're messing with it. Mm-hmm. Mixing it up. Wow. So, uh, with regard to the Illustrated Man, um, the thing that I take away from that is. Is the Groucho Marx song? That's the best thing that comes to mind. You know the Lydia O Lydia song. Um, it, 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 you know they're both telling a story. And the Illustrated Man is there a unique, um, is there a unique sort of message of the whole? Uh, because I don't remember it as having a message of a whole, other than you know here's a story that's on this guy's body, and here's a story that's on this guy's body. My sense is that uh, the illustrated man tries to make a book out of um, a metaphor that Kafka uses in in the penal colony. That as our sins are written on our bodies, 
Uh-huh. And so here we have an illustrated man, and the stories of the world are, in fact, inscribed on the bodies of humanity. Um, and that's that's a a moving lyrical point. I, I, I grant it, but I'm with you. I don't think that there's any particular connection among the different stories. I don't see how uh, how the Velt, for example, which is a dynamite story. Um, mm. And the city, another dynamite story, fit in by being written on Rod Steiger. <laughs> right. I haven't seen the movie, but uh, uh, I did read the book years and years ago, and I, I seem to recall that there, there's a kid, and he he's awed by the tattooed man, and and imagines. Uh, maybe maybe I'm thinking of. Uh, I've, I might be conflating it with the TV show. Uh, he, I think he had. He adapted some of those for the Ray Badbury theater uh, TV show. But isn't there a third one, uh, sort of a fix-up as well? Third fix-up of short stories? I might be wrong. I don't. I, the only one I would even begin to use the word fix-up for is the Martian Chronicles, which I think okay. of as a composite novel. Um, I think that the Illustrated Man is just a, a framework for putting the stories together. Um, okay. sort of in the way that uh, Canterbury Tales is, although the Canterbury mm-hmm. Tales tells a more substantial story about the life among the pilgrims who are telling the tales than the Illustrated right. Man does. He has other collections like R is for Rocket, but I don't think that they really cohere. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.